0: Good morning. Welcome to the Calvary Chapel Sydney live stream. So good to meet with you and to share the Word of God. We'll be in the book of Luke chapter 9 today. And uh, let's pray. Thanks, Father, for the wonderful day you've given us, for the grace and peace that we have through Jesus Christ, our Savior, that we can come to you no matter where we're at, no matter what we've Uh, been through or what our history is, and that you delight those who seek you, those who place their faith in you. And I pray that we would hear your word today, Lord, with uh, hearts that are soft, with um, a, a heart that's ready to respond to what you say, to rejoice in your goodness and to praise you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. I'm sure you'd agree that there's a feeling of satisfaction and contentment when you eat to the full. Uh, as I grow older, I've learned that this feeling needs to be experienced moderately, as I tend to, or I can, eat more than what I need to sustain health and energy. And when you're full, it's like your needs are met. You're satisfied. You're content. There's more to eat, but you don't need any more. You don't want any more. You're satisfied. Capacity has been reached. And really, we like being full, um, you know, forget the glass half full, half empty. We just want it full. Why not? Why not have it full? Uh, The Bible mentions Job, Isaac, and David all dying old and full of days. These were men that lived life to the full. They finished all the days that God had appointed for them on the earth. And I believe that God has created us to all live a full life regardless of health condition or disability or your job situation or circumstances. And some lives can be more uh, lengthy than others. Some people can have more days, but every day can be full of love, joy, and peace from God as we trust Him. And we can have full diaries, but still be empty. We can have houses full of stuff, but feel a lack of satisfaction, feel empty, uh, there's a rich young ruler that came to Jesus and he said, and we think, well, rich young ruler, what could he possibly want? He he has the life that I've always wanted, right? He's young, he's rich, he's the boss, he has power. Um, but he asked Jesus, what do I lack? So he had everything, but he knew he wasn't living life to the full. And that could only be experienced through faith in Jesus Christ. It would, it, For him to experience that full life, he would have to get rid of some stuff because he was placing his faith in those things rather than the Lord. So last week we spoke of Jesus. He healed and cleansed the woman of her impurity who had suffered uncleanness for 12 years. And Jesus raised a 12-year-old girl to life after she died of an illness. And it was faith in Christ, not the touch of his robe or the The grasping of his hands that brought health and cleansing and healing, but it was faith in Christ that made the difference. And it's faith in Christ that brings forgiveness for Christians. That that verse in 1 John uh, 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. That's for Christians. Um, uh, Those who follow Christ, those who are born again, uh, Proverbs twenty eight nine. It says the prayer of the lawless is an abomination. That those who don't fear God, um, he doesn't he doesn't respond to their prayer for forgiveness until they're first born again, and then he will forgive, and he will forgive us too when we have our need when we have that desperate need for cleansing. This chapter is going to show the power and authority of Christ that even though he gave it to his disciples, he retains all of it. When I was a kid and we were watching TV, the person that had the remote, they had the power. That's what we said, he's got the power, he can change the channel. And when you handed that remote off to somebody else, you lost the power. But with Jesus, it's quite different. He has all authority, all power in heaven and earth. And when he gave his power to his disciples, it's like his power actually grew because he retained all his power, and then his power was manifested through his disciples wherever he sent them. And uh, praise the Lord that his people are empowered by the Spirit to walk in the way that pleases him. So Luke 9, starting in verse 1. Then he called his 12 disciples together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. He sent them to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. And he said to them, "'Take nothing for the journey, neither staffs, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics apiece. Whatever house you enter, stay there and from there depart. And whoever will not receive you, when you go out of that city, shake off the very dust from your feet as a testimony against them.' So they departed and went through the towns, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere." At the start of his public ministry, Jesus called 12 disciples or followers to uh, follow after him, and Jesus gave those that he sent power, it says, and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. So there was no demon or Satan himself that had more power or authority than Jesus or his disciples, and they were to follow the pattern that Jesus had set for them, to preach the gospel and then it would be attended by these miraculous spiritual things, these miracles, these healings that proved the truth of what they were saying. Because they're talking about the kingdom of God, they're talking about spiritual things, and because there's a reality in the spiritual world that power was present physically among them. That the sick and the weary were restored to wholeness. We see Jesus He proved his power and ability to forgive sins, that he was God-made flesh by healing the paralyzed man. And then later, he rose from the dead, proving his power over sin and death. When we prepare to go on a journey, we know where we're going. That's our preference. We know what we hope to do, and therefore, we know what we need to pack to prepare. And Jesus forbade them from packing. He didn't he said don't bring two staffs don't bring a money bag don't even bring food like no preparation just go not no toothbrush no cash This would require them to trust in God, wouldn't it? That they'd have to look to him. Instead of leaning on a staff, he says, I want you to lean on me. I want you to trust me and the things that I've done for you to walk through those doors that I've opened and not to trust the money. Oh, we'll be all right. I've got you a hundred bucks. We'll be fine. No, he wanted them looking to him. He wanted them looking to God and trusting him for their daily food and their accommodation and their health, their protection. You would use your staff to fend off a a robber or a wild animal. He's like, trust God. Don't look to your stuff. Walk by faith, not by sight. He doesn't hand them with tickets, with their set destinations, but they were to go through those doors that he would open for them. Barclay, he provides some insight into Jesus' words to his disciples. He writes, He writes, He was once again speaking words which were very familiar to a Jew. The Talmud tells us that no one is to go to the temple mount with staff, shoes, girdle of money, or dusty feet. The idea was that when a man entered the temple, he must make it quite clear that he had left everything which had to do with trade and business and worldly affairs behind. This is really a good point for us because especially working from home, a lot of us, work has a way of intruding and kind of worming its way into our, our ordinary lives and um, our relationships with God, our relationship with family, and those that God desires to impact through us. If, they were going to, if these disciples were going to be about God's business, they needed to walk by faith, not by sight. They were to be content with the lodging that God provided for them. They weren't to be looking for a better deal. But as long as they were in a town and received, they were to stay in one place. And if they were not received, they were to shake the dust off their feet. It was a kind of washing their hands of a situation saying, hey, I've been responsible to do what God told me to do. I spoke the words of truth. You don't want to hear it. So it's a testimony really against you that I have done my bit. Um, we see this happening in Acts thirteen fifty one. The Jews, they stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and Antioch. And it says, they shook off the dust of their feet against them upon their departure, filled, this is cool, with joy and the Holy Spirit. So they weren't like angry and mad and frustrated, but they were full of joy. They had done what God called them to do. The people hadn't received it, but they went on to the next place because there would be people who would hear the word of God and receive it with joy. The apostles, they were obedient to Christ's command. He sent them out two by two, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Their service to God wasn't confined to a particular town or region, but they went as the Lord led them. And one profitable application for us is to walk by faith in life in ministry, in, in the place where God has you, in your workplace, in your family situation, your health condition. Trust God right where you are. And it's not that Jesus is forbidding the use of a staff or having cash on hand or having provisions or planning as if those are hindrance in themselves, but he was teaching his disciples an important lesson, that they would be trusting God looking to God to supply all their needs, believing that God has sent us, Jesus has sent us, Jesus has given us power and authority, and Jesus is going to help us, and he cares about our bodies too. He's going to keep us fed and housed and safe. It's way easier to rail against the, the evils of having too many things, or possessions, or uh, worldly attachments, rather than dealing with our unbelief and our lack of faith personally. Because we all have a measure of faith, that means that we don't have all faith. There is, there is room in all of us for our faith in God to grow. It means nothing to say, here I am, send me, if we're unwilling to submit to God's way in going. We shouldn't feel guilty if we have a car or cars or houses or properties, or having money in your wallets or food in your pantries, but your faith and your security and your affections, they ought to be on God. Our trust should be in Him. It's not the things that you don't have or the things that you have that are keeping you from the full life that God intends. We sometimes think, oh, if I only had this role I could really serve the Lord. If I only didn't have this affliction, I could serve God better. I could experience this fullness of life. But it's your unbelief. It's our lack of faith in God that keeps us from the full life, not your stuff or what you don't have. That that misses the point of our need to be trusting the Lord, to be seeking him and following him. It's on us. And praise the Lord that he helps us. They weren't alone out there. God was with them. Luke 9, verse 7. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard of all that was done by him, and he was perplexed, because it was said by some that John had risen from the dead, and by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the old prophets had risen again. Herod said, John I have beheaded, but who is this of whom I hear such things? So he sought to see him. This is really amazing. Luke writes, it was the disciples who went and did these wonders in Jesus' name, but the 12, they aren't credited with doing anything here. Did you see that? It says, Now Herod the Tetrarch heard of all that was done by him. Yes, the disciples were out there. They were sh- sharing the word of God. They were preaching the gospel. They were healing people, but they were doing it in Christ's name. Jesus was getting all the credit for it. He was getting all the glory. And Herod hears of all these things that were being done by Jesus. And a number of perplexing reports reached his ears that John the Baptist, whom he had beheaded, had risen from the dead, that the prophet Elijah had appeared or one of the ancient prophets had uh, risen from the dead. He was confused but also intrigued because of these miraculous things he was hearing about Jesus. This is the same Herod, the Tetrarch of Galilee, whom before he was crucified was brought before Herod. And uh, it says in Luke 23 verse 8, It confirms later, now when Herod saw Jesus, he was exceedingly glad for he had desired for a long time to see him because he had heard many things about him and he hoped to see some miracle done by him. The meeting was long awaited and desired by Herod. It ended up with Jesus being silent and not doing the miracle that Herod wanted. And so he was mocked and ridiculed, clothed in robe, of purple. And this shows that there's a difference between wanting or an openness to see Jesus and the desire to seek him. Herod had questions. He desired an answer. He wanted to see miracles. He wanted to show. But he didn't have any desire to seek Christ or to follow him or to believe or trust him. Curiosity or a desire to see Jesus does not imply a willingness to submit to him or a desire to serve him. Those who have not seen Jesus in person but have believed, they are more blessed than those who only saw him with their eyes because he is the one to be trusted for salvation. He's the one to be obeyed and believed. He is a redeemer and a savior. Those who trust and rely upon him, perhaps never even seeing him, such as our case, as Lord and Savior, we are the ones who will someday see him in glory and rejoice with him. Praise the Lord for that. Luke 9, verse 10. And the apostles, when they had returned, told him all that they had done. Then he took them and went aside privately into a deserted place belonging to the city called Bethsaida. But when the multitudes knew it, they followed him. And he received them and spoke to them about the kingdom of God and healed those who had need of healing. The 12 disciples that Jesus sent out, they're also called apostles. They were previously called that in Luke 6.13, which means one who is sent. And we use that as a point of distinction, the 12 apostles um, separate from the other disciples, though we see there were other apostles later on, the call of the apostle. Um, And they reported all that Jesus had done through them, how God worked through them. Jesus takes his disciples and withdrew with them from the public eye. There was still work to be done. There was still a great need. But they also had a need to commune with Christ, to talk about the things that had happened, to debrief a bit, and to discuss. And and I'm sure Jesus had so much wisdom to share with them individually. Uh, In talking with Jesus, they were speaking to someone who had been with them the whole time. They weren't talking to someone like who had no idea of where they had been and who they had talked to. Jesus was aware of this because he is God, and he had so much to share with them, and they, as a team, had time to, to uh, reconnect and to talk about because they weren't all with each other, and they could uh, talk about the great things that God had done and testify and how encouraging that is for us when we can testify to one another of the great things God has done. I love that Jesus is more than a mouth, but he has ears and he uses them. He listens. He has a heart that's compassionate. He cares about how his people feel. And he he brings us along gently so that we can grow and learn and develop in our faith and obedience. As this is all going on, multitudes of people, however, they figure out where Jesus is going and they begin to follow him and seek them out in droves. And Though they had been discovered and followed and multitudes came, Jesus did not rebuke them. He didn't chide them for for seeking Him. He didn't have His disciples run interference to send the people away. But it says, He spoke the kingdom of God and healed those who had need of healing. Very much what the disciples did, isn't it? Whenever we're sick or weak, we figure healing is exactly what we need. Um, we humans, were quite notorious for uh, turning our wants into needs and then desiring more than we need. Like, uh, pretty notorious. Uh, maybe we think physical healing is exactly what we need to break through to greater fr- fruitfulness or usefulness and joy. But perhaps that weakness, that sickness, God knows very well how he intends to use it to bring us to that fruitfulness that we think only healing could possibly bring. See, our lack of faith is a bigger problem than our poor health. Without a desperate, profound sense of need, maybe we wouldn't even seek God. We wouldn't serve or even consider Him. But because of illness, because of weakness, because of poverty, we come to God in desperation and He uses those things to, to show us He is able to meet our need, to supply our need, so that we will trust Him in the future when we actually have something. To entrust that to Him, to give your life to Him. I like what Matthew Henry wrote. He says, Christ has still power over bodily diseases and heals his people that need healing. Sometimes he sees that we need the sickness for the good of our souls more than the healing for the ease of our bodies. Death is the servant to heal the saints of all diseases. How cool is that? Death being God's servant. It's definitely not the way that I usually see see things. Faith in God, it continues to trust when there is no relief. Faith joyfully obeys when God seems far away. He is not far to any, from any who call out to him. That's one thing we can be assured of through his word and Christ's example. When they sought him, those people, he wasn't inconvenienced. He wasn't too tired for them. He wasn't too busy. He wasn't so occupied that he couldn't spend time. No, he taught them he healed them and he'll do the same for us if we'll seek him. Luke nine twelve. when the day began to wear away, the 12 came and said to him, send the multitude away that they may go into the surrounding towns and country and lodge and get provisions for we are in a deserted place here. But he said to them, you give them something to eat. And they said, we have no more than five loaves and two fish unless we go and buy food for all these people. For there were about 5,000 men. Then he said to his disciples, make them sit down in groups of 50. And they did so and made them all sit down. The chapter began with Jesus giving his disciples power and authority. 11 verses later, it didn't take very long. They come to Jesus demanding about what he should do, what he needs to do. Proverbs 30, Agur said, the earth is restless and disturbed when a servant rules. The apostles, they're acting like they're in charge, like they knew what's best. I wonder, can we do the same thing? We tell God what he needs to do? Well, yes, we can. They said, Jesus, send these people away to the nearby towns. A town is not enough for these people. We don't have the food. We don't have the accommodation. The day is wearing away. We're in a deserted place. We have nothing to offer. On a high from trusting in God, they stopped looking to God in faith. Similar to Hebrews' overthrow of Jericho, right? They obeyed God. He told them to march around the city, not to even say a word until that final day when they were to shout after having circled the city seven times. The walls fell down. It was this great deliverance. Then they move to Ai, this little town, and they say, we know what to do. And great was their fall because they look to themselves rather than to God and his wisdom. Jesus is not irate or disappointed or shaking his head at them. Sadly, he just answers, you give them something to eat. It's like saying, if you want to play God, you do what only God can do. They hadn't considered because of the small amount of food that they had on hand, which was five loaves and two fish, that it could possibly feed 5,000 people. It wasn't even enough for their little team. That was, that was a, like a lunch or a small meal for one person. Now, this scene, it's recorded in every gospel. The Matthew account says that the 5,000 did not include the women and children that were there. This was the 5,000 men plus women and children. So, it's a great multitude of people. Um, They didn't have money to buy food. One village bakery, it was not going to have enough food to support this group of people. There's no Uber Eats. I mean, what do we do? We send them away. They need to go fend for themselves. Right? That's what they had been doing. They had been trusting the Lord and going wherever he led them and they would go to a city and God would provide for them. It's good enough for these people too. But Jesus is like, you feed them. Jesus had planned on them feeding the people. And so he had them make everyone sit down in groups of 50. And it was common for people to feast lying down on the ground, reclining. So it's not an inconsiderate Thing to command. And I imagine the people asked, Why are we being separated into groups of 50? And why are we sitting down? I mean, there's no catering, there's no plan. Why is this happening? The disciples, they were only armed with, Well, Jesus said so. I don't really know. Jesus didn't say. He says, Well, we're going to give you something to eat. They had no idea. This required faith in the apostles, didn't it? It required faith in the people as well to obey that command when they didn't see any um, wagons lined up with food. There were at least 100 groups of 50 people. It undoubtedly helped to accurately count how many people there were there. Luke 9 verse 16. Then he took the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up to heaven, he blessed and broke them and gave them to the disciples to set before the multitude. So they ate and were filled, and twelve baskets of the leftover fragments were taken up by them. When all the food had been handed to Jesus, in his hands it was miraculously more than enough to do the unthinkable, that it filled all those people who sat in those groups to the full. The living bread had, coming down, had come down from heaven. He looked up to heaven. He blessed and thanked God. There's a traditional Jewish prayer that's spoken before eating bread. It's, blessed are you, Lord our God, king of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. It's not so much the bread that is being blessed, but God who deserves and receives all the blessing for what he's provided. So after praying, Jesus breaks the loaves. He gives them to the apostles. They distribute the food to the people. All the people ate and were filled, including the apostles. Twelve baskets of leftovers were collected. A large basket for each of the disciples to see how miraculous it was that they had so much more food left over than what they started with. The apostles imagined they knew what Jesus needed to do. But Jesus did a miracle instead using the small amount that they gave him. It was all God's work. It was him from beginning to end. He didn't need the loaves. He didn't need their fish. He didn't even need their obedience to do wondrous things. But when they trusted him and they obeyed him, and they committed the little that they had into his hands, God worked in miraculous ways to meet needs and they were partakers of it. They didn't just see it, they got to be involved in it. He didn't need their involvement, but he chooses. God chooses in his grace to use weak, flawed people who forget, people who who think they know better than God sometimes to do his work. 5 loaves and 2 fish would have left them very hungry. But faith In Christ led to fullness. The apostles, like all who've been born again by grace through faith, we have power and authority through Christ, yet our tendency is to walk by sight rather than faith in God. These disciples, they would have settled for having their dreams and fantasies fulfilled of Jesus being on the throne and them being uh, in in a lordly position in Israel. But God had a better plan that they did not expect. Jesus was the living bread who came down from heaven, who would be broken on Calvary, whom they, through the gospel, would be distributing so that people who believe on him could be born again and filled with the Holy Spirit and have eternal life. Those who ate bread on the hillside, they were hungry the next day. But all who partake of Christ through faith We have fullness of the Holy Spirit who comforts and satisfies us. All needs are met, and that path to eternal glory, it would not be by earthly might or power, but by faith and suffering, as we'll see. It's not a path that we would choose for ourselves, but that was the path um, Jesus walked before glorification. Luke 9, verse 18. Now it happened as he was alone praying that his disciples joined him. And he asked them, saying, Who do the crowd say that I am? So they answered and said, John the Baptist, but some say Elijah. And others say that one of the old prophets has risen again. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said, The Christ of God. And he strictly warned and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. This is one of the many times Jesus spends time in private prayer. It says his disciples joined him and he asked them, who do the crowd say that I am? And there were a lot of contradictory opinions and answers John the Baptist, Elijah, a reincarnation of an old prophet. And then Jesus asks a much more important question. He says, but who do you say that I am? Peter answers, the Christ of God, the Messiah that God had promised to send, to seek and save the lost, the anointed of God. Elijah and John the Baptist, they were reformers. Jesus came as a redeemer who would fulfill the law. He would provide eternal life that the law and prophets and Moses had only spoken of. It's a good thing for us to think about. Who do you say that Jesus is? If we say that Jesus is the Christ, that he is our Lord and Savior, do our lives, do our words, do our works proclaim that truth? Do they align? Are they lining up with that fact? Because actions speak truer than words. People have all kinds of ideas of who Jesus is, but how your life answers this question is really the most important thing. Because your belief concerning Christ is going to impact your entire life. The choices that you make, the things that you say, uh, the faith that you choose to put into practice, to do something, to, to embrace a path of suffering that you could avoid um, or possibly avoid or hope to avoid, but instead to suffer gladly knowing it's the will of God for you to endure till the end. Peter confessed Jesus Christ, but he had no idea how Jesus was going to redeem people by crucifixion, that he would die on Calvary and his blood would atone for the sins of the world, that he wasn't just going to save the Jews and deliver them from the rule of Rome, but that he was going to deliver Jews and Gentiles then and for all time, those who trust in him, that we could be redeemed from the curse of sin and go to heaven and be with him forever. And Jesus said, keep silent at this time concerning his true identity. He says, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and raised the third day. He said something they just could not understand that the savior needed to suffer. He would be rejected, murdered, but then resurrected. This path to glory was not a show of strength But but in weakness, not in pride, but in humility, not of the flesh, but of the spirit. Jesus continues in Luke 9.23, And he said to them all, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. What profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and his himself destroyed or lost? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his own glory and in his Father's and of the holy angels. Jesus knew he must suffer many things. He also knew that his followers would suffer many things. He knew his disciples would suffer as they followed Christ in faith. Anyone who wants to follow Jesus and go where he is, In eternal glory, he says, needs to deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow Jesus. And that the only way to save your life is to lose it for Christ's sake. And this life of self-denial, it's not possible in the flesh. It's only possible when we're born again through faith in Christ and filled with the Holy Spirit. When we, these words, dying to self, it can be a bit nebulous, and it's very difficult for me to try to define for you what that looks like in your situation, because I don't know what you're facing right now. But thankfully, we have Jesus Christ as an example. He humbled himself. He was obedient before his heavenly father, though he had all power and authority. He walked in love towards others, people who hated him, enemies. He showed compassion to meet their needs rather than thinking of himself. He took on the role of a slave, right? They're feasting in the upper room. He is the one who puts on the towel. He takes the initiative to show care and concern for others. He washes all the disciples' feet. And he says, this is an example that I'm giving you to follow. He endured betrayal, rejection, intense physical pain and suffering, for the joy that laid before him, knowing it was the Lord's will that he would suffer and that through his death, many would be brought to life. Jesus carried that cross of self-denial every day as he walked with his disciples long before that long bloody march up to Calvary's hill. The disciples, they were entertaining ideas of, of possessions and lands and power with riches and crowns. But Jesus, he was going to wear a crown of thorns as he bled to atone for the sin of others. He never sinned, but he died for them. That's what denying self looks like. It's, it's death to the flesh and life toward God. It's, it's a love for God and others. It's being others-centered rather than yourself. And Jesus willingly gave his entire life to love and serve others without that natural gripe. But what about me? Because that's so endemic in our flesh, isn't it? We think, how does this impact me? How will this affect me? And, and that can be our paradigm through which we see everything. But Jesus was looking toward God in faith, towards others with love. And that's what denying self, that's what taking up your cross means. So it's only in losing our lives for Jesus that we can be found and saved. Jesus asked, he said, for what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and is himself destroyed or lost? It's like, say you earn that promotion. Say you earn the accolades of the world. You become the world's first trillionaire. You have all the fame and accolades that the world provides. How will that profit you when you leave it all behind in death? What help will that cash or those cars or those properties, that yacht, how will it profit you when you stand before God on judgment day naked and he knows the secrets of your heart? He knows your intents and that we don't measure up according to his righteousness. On judgment day, what, thing, what good will those memories serve you? Everything you've acquired for, everything you've worked for, it will be stripped from us in death and it will keep changing hands until the world passes away. It's like, what comfort, what consolation is the memory of jewelry or property or a villa you once owned on the seashore, what what comfort will that provide a soul that's burning in hell? None. Losing your temporary life on earth for Christ's sake, it causes us to inherit eternal life with Jesus. There was a missionary martyred uh, who shared the gospel in Ecuador named Jim Elliot. This man was dashing, intelligent. He was a sportsman. He was told by many, you are throwing your life away to become a missionary when you have such a future here in politics, acting, you can do anything. And he said, he wrote, it is no, he is no fool who, cannot, who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. See, our lives are a gift from God. It's fitting that we would present ourselves as living sacrifices unto him. Choosing to die to self to honor him. Our Lord and Savior gave his life for us. Denial of self, that's always going to involve suffering. But to refuse to deny yourself, that brings even more suffering. Following Jesus, it... it, does mean suffering, perhaps within your own family or on the workplace, in the corporate world. But when we deny ourselves and we suffer according to God's will, we're never without consolation and comfort or an eternal reward. And you know, the Lord sees fit to give us rewards every day with his presence as we follow him, as we trust him. He doesn't leave us alone. He won't forsake you. Turn, please, to Galatians chapter 6 starting in verse 7. Galatians 6, verse 7. It says, "'Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. But he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. And let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart.'" Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. It's always good to deny yourself in a world that says we need to be living for ourselves, to take up our cross daily, and to follow Jesus. This means loving and caring for others, sowing to the spirit instead of the flesh, walking in faith and not by sight. Jesus said, if you're ashamed of me and my words, I will be ashamed of him when he comes in his own glory. So the things that we're ashamed about, those are the things we want to conceal or keep hidden. We, we keep it hidden because we want to avoid ridicule. We want to avoid suffering or dishonor. And if you feel that identifying with Jesus Christ is going to damage your reputation, are you truly his? Isaiah 42, 17, it says of those who worship idols, they shall be greatly ashamed who trust in carved images, who say to the molded images, you are our gods. I was thinking, if we're ashamed of Jesus, it may be that he's not really our savior. He's just an idol in our lives. We're looking to him kind of like a fan, like Herod, who's like, this is kind of cool. I want to learn about this guy, rather than a follower I believe this verse, when Jesus says, being ashamed, it's not him just being a bit embarrassed that his children are walking in fear, but it's the shame of eternal separation from God as it's written in Daniel twelve two. It says, and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. So you see the two there, everlasting life and shame and contempt together. Now, today is the day to address the fact, if we're ashamed of Christ or his gospel. Paul wasn't ashamed. He wasn't ashamed of the gospel. He wasn't ashamed of his chain. Uh, Peter, he was not ashamed to suffer shame and reproach for the sake of Christ. And Jesus was not ashamed to call them brethren. Those who are saved by faith in Christ, they're the ones with capacity to live lives to the full because Jesus is our life and he lives. He lives. He died, but he rose again. Last verse I want to share with you in Colossians 3, starting in verse 1. A good exhortation. It says, If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth. For you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Jesus desires those, his followers, to seek him and be surrendered to him, to deny ourselves, to take up our cross daily and follow him. We can only do this when we're born again, and we walk by faith in him, not by sight. We've all sinned, but praise the Lord, there's forgiveness in him and a fullness of joy and life that's worth living. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your grace and your goodness to us all. And for this example of Jesus, how he, long before the cross, he denied himself. He took up that cross. He was willing to do anything in obedience to you because he trusted the Father. And Lord, I pray that in us you would put such uh, faith, such obedience, commitment, and that we too would experience this fullness of life that's only available through Christ. Lord, I pray that my brothers and sisters would be strong in the Lord and the power of your might, that we would put on the whole armor of God, that we would walk in the way that pleases you, and that we would be uh, not ashamed of the gospel. We would be bold to, to walk in your ways and also not to forget that we need you to show us the way because without you, we can do nothing. Lord, I praise you and thank you, and uh, be glorified today and always in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless.